Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Strategy and Insider podcast. My name is Thomas Solbach, and I'm your host of this podcast and partner at Strategy and in the pharma and life sciences practice. This first season of our podcast is all about the future of health. Together with different healthcare experts from wide-ranging fields like the hospital sector, academia, uh, pharma companies, public sector, and also from the entrepreneurial space and startup scene, we explore some of the most critical future trends and challenges within the healthcare industry. And as you may have wondered, what took us so long to publish uh, the next podcast episode, you'll probably imagine that we have also been affected by the current spread of the coronavirus. Uh, luckily, not diseased, but um, since we wanted to offer you relevant conversations on on topical circumstances, we have adjusted the planned cadence of our episodes and somewhat restructured our recording settings. And in order to keep everyone safe and sound and prevent the coronavirus from spreading further, we will record all future episodes in a remote setting for the time being. And thankfully, modern technology does allow us to keep going also under these very special um, circumstances. So, This is why today's podcast is recorded right from my living room um, in the near of Frankfurt. And I'm basically sitting on a comfortable chair, enjoying the views into my garden and looking very much forward to today's podcast. And I'm totally thrilled and delighted to welcome one of Europe's most renowned medical and data ethicists to today's episode. And Honestly, I feel truly honored that she agreed on rather short notice to participate in this podcast in spite of all uh, the ongoings um, at the moment. So please welcome Professor Dr. Christiane Wopen. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Christiane is a professor for ethics and theory of medicine and uh, the head of the ethics research unit at the University of Cologne. Within the university, she is the executive director of the Cologne Center for Ethics, Rights, Economics and Social Sciences of Health, which is one of the first research centers in Germany, specifically dealing with interdisciplinary approaches um, to conduct and foster integrative research in the area of health. And the, the main focus of the research center lies on developing different concepts of aging and demographic change, as well as health literacy in, in, in complex environments, but also the digital transformation to shape up our future of health in a, in a fair and, and also a positive manner. Um, besides her main job um, at the university, Christiane is the chair of the European Group of Ethics um, of Science and Technologies. And additionally, she is the former chair of the German Ethics Council, as well as the former co-speaker of the Data Ethics Commission of the Federal Government of Germany. There is certainly no doubt at my end that Christiane is one of the most proficient experts in the field of ethics. And I'm sure that our conversation that we'll have today will greatly benefit from her thoughts and beliefs on the importance around the quality of life in healthcare from an, from an ethical perspective. So, Christiane, 
Thank you very much indeed for taking the time, especially in these very busy and also crazy times to talk to me today. It's my great pleasure and thank you for having me with you. Very much agreed. Uh, it is a pleasure. And before we are going to cover um, kind of the overarching topic of the future of healthcare, but also talk a little about the COVID-19 pandemic situation. First of all, I would really like to get to know you a little better uh, as Christiane, um, as you are a very experienced and also sophisticated medic, ethicist, but also researcher in, in, in this relevant field. And when looking into your career where you started studying at the University of Cologne, in parallel to working as a doctor, you also studied philosophy in Germany's former capital Bonn. And as I personally can recall from my own thesis back in, in the days and working beside that, a doctorate itself and the work as a doctor does require quite an amount of time and discipline. How basically did you manage all of this kind of double work coming in and how did that probably also help you to manage your packed agenda that you are certainly having today? Well, um, when, when I'm really interested in something, a lot of energy flows from what I learn. And I did philosophy only for fun, actually, not for a degree. And it okay. also inspires me to discover connections between different perspectives and scientific disciplines. That's why the center you mentioned is a paradise for me for work. <laughs> so, and this has lasted until today. And maybe you could say I've been practice, uh, practicing this for a long time now. And I think it's like in sports. We can call it perhaps muscles to bridge perspectives. Sure. So it's it's kind of the passion and the interest that really drove you doing this when I'm what I'm reading into this, right? Yeah, absolutely right. What made you basically then change kind of your professional activity as a doctor to change into medical ethics. Was it that kind of you had the impression when talking about medicine per se or medical studies that ethics were not touched sufficiently enough in medicine or what made you kind of switch into this uh, field that you are now um, active and leading in? Uh, uh, the reason was first a quite pragmatic one. So we got our first child when I worked in gynecology and obstetrics and though thinking of getting back to hospital after a couple of months, I early recognized that I preferred to stay with our child. And anyway, we quickly get our second daughter and mm -hmm. third and the fourth one. And then we moved to another city because of the job of my husband. And I then received an offer to work on a European project on medical ethics. And that was the beginning of an otherwise unplanned journey, but which I felt in love with. Oh, sure. So it's, it's more kind of it came by chance and you took the chance um, and, and it evolved from there. It, it wasn't straight planned from the beginning. I, I'm at least hearing, right? Absolutely not. Nothing of those things I'm doing now was planned. Um, I think the most important thing was the family and having the opportunity to really be with my family and everything that could be done around was wonderful. And I took it and I'm very grateful for all these opportunities. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, life gave you great opportunities and that was also acknowledged back in 2018 where you were awarded the German Federal Cross of Merit First Class as an acknowledgement of your 
yeah, continued social engagement and, and obviously a, a, a very well-deserved honor, I can only imagine. And um, in your acceptance speech, you have been saying that this award does basically encourage you and your motivation for the work you do. And it's kind of a, a permission for you to have that passion and, and keep going. In daily life, if I re revert that back, um, what rewards you most in your let's call it your mission of, of defining ethical standards uh, that, that will help us shape a, a better common future in healthcare? Well, I think there is a connection between the social engagement and my professional work. So in the first years of our century, I engaged and participated in setting up psychosocial counseling centers throughout Germany for pregnant women who have a major inner conflict. It's called Donum Vitae. And it was and is important to me that these women can be reached by a Christian-based counseling service that take their freedom and responsibility seriously. And apart from that, I started to participate in counseling politics in the National Ethics Council and so on. So the bridging, I think the, the major thing underlying this is my engagement for contributing to build up opportunities that people can flourish. Yeah. Mm. What rewards me most is to experience that my work helps people to flourish and that they can develop a more intimate relationship with who they are and why they are in this world. And, and you, you, you're referencing the counseling of governments that you started early on in, in kind of your career then. Um, how has that changed since the last couple of weeks? I mean, um, is it that you that you are getting uh, phone calls on a regular basis from, from important people or um, is that remaining unchanged or uh, how is life currently for you if you compare that to the past? Huh? Yeah, that, uh, that changed a bit. So I think my experience is good at the moment because I am experienced on the level of, bun of the Bundesland in Germany, on the mm -hmm. national level, on the European level and on the international level because I was a member of the International Bioethics Committee of UNESCO. Mm. And I was the president of the Global Summit of National Ethics Council. So they... Meanwhile, I have a bit of experience how debates go and how to talk to whom, in which way. Mm. And I think it is recognized. And yes, I get phone calls. I was nominated as an expert um, in a council by Minister President Laschet here in North Rhine-Westphalia. Mm -hmm. But of course, federal ministries call and ask something. So there's personal contacts, but also a work in counseling groups. Probably that's also a good lead over um, that without a doubt that our healthcare system in, in Germany, in Europe, but, but globally is currently facing one of its uh, biggest challenges, uh, at least of modern history, um, due to the COVID-19 uh, situation. And if we look into Italy, the, the outbreak has gotten so bad so quickly that many of the doctors there are already forced to practice uh, catastrophe medicine, determining which severely ill patients should and, and, and should not get um, care based on the resources available. And experts, which I'm not obviously, uh, call this uh, dryaging and to a certain degree uh, is based on the utilitarian principle of maximizing the benefits 
for the largest number of people. Um, could you please help us um, as, as more naive um, to this topic and, and elaborate a little um, on the concept behind that and, and what your perspectives are? Uh, yes, of course. So there are, at the moment, fortunately, rare situations in which the human and technical resources are not sufficient for the immediate care of all people affected by a disaster. Mm -hmm. A classic example is an earthquake or a tsunami. And when medical helpers come to such a place, they have to decide who to supply it all and who to supply first. Mm -hmm. So they have to sort out, that's in the word triage, the needy, so to speak, who can be saved and who is in a hopeless situation, mm -hmm. who needs help urgently and who can wait a bit. And this is not necessarily a utilitarian perspective. You can also ask, how can the right to access to life-saving care adequately and best be fulfilled? Mm -hmm. And if you apply the utilitarian principle, an important question immediately arises. Do you want to save most lives or most years of life? This mm -hmm. may be contradictory. So just imagine if you save 10 people with a life expectancy of 10 years each, you gain 10 lives and 100 years of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you save five people with a life expectancy of 40 years, you gain five lives and 200 years of life. But yeah. what is more important, more lives or more years of life? So cool. there's no place in the German constitution for such accounting. Since every person has the same dignity and the same right to life. And I think it's important really to stress that, that this kind of counting is not good. It's not possible under German conditions. Hmm. Accordingly, the first question that arises in a triage situation is which human lives can be saved at all. Hmm. And then the question arises as to who can be saved only with immediate help and who can still wait. Yeah. These questions do not yet solve all the problems in the concrete situation because you have to take into account very individual circumstances, but they give a basic orientation, namely that there is no difference in the value of human lives, whether old mm. or young, previously disabled or not, with or without children, rich or poor, everyone has the same dignity. If I just think back... Um, how uh, how it might be in 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 wards in hospitals it might be a, a, a very high psychological burden also to the doctors out there because they are in the front line of making these decisions right and, and have you heard anything back from from how they cope within these situations and and how hospitals are preparing for this yeah fortunately we have not so many hospitals in, in Germany none but in Italy yeah. and in New York of course there are situations where those doctors have to um take these decisions and they are completely overburdened so eventually that's a unbearable situation yeah they need support not only a psychosocial support, but also support for their decisions. So there are societies, academic societies, which define or that define rules for those situations, but they are problematic mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, in Germany, we have a set of rules uh, that were brought up by a group of academic societies And I think they have to be discussed on a societal basis. At mm. least I don't agree to every rule which they propose. 
Um, and others, the Italian committee has launched some recommendations and others as well. So that is a complicated situation. And I hope that not too many doctors and nurses and those who care for the patients have to face these decisions because that are you, you cannot come out of these decisions in a good way. You can only mm. choose the lesser evil. When you talk about those rules, can you give us a feeling of what those rules are, how concrete or vague they are? Yeah, so the Italian, so the rules from the Italian society, um, not the civil society, but the academic institution, um, clearly choose a utilitarian approach. Mm -hmm. The German recommendations do not take into account a utilitarian approach because it's obvious that it is against the German constitution. Mm -hmm. um, so it is important to distinguish two situations. Whether you have to allocate a free ventilator to a to you have one ventilator and you can only allocate it to one patient but you have five who are in need mm -hmm. or you have the situation that a patient has already a ventilator but others come and they seem to be more urgent or they seem to have a better long time prognosis or so and then you have to decide whether to take the ventilator away from the patient who already has it. Yeah, that's, that's even harder, yeah, that decision, I mean. Yeah, it's even harder. And I think we cannot accept another criterion as the chance to survive at all. It cannot be important whether you have an impairment, whether you have five or 20 years. I think if you once are on a ventilator, there's no way out despite of a change of the prognosis so that um, the patient is in a such devastated stage and deteriorates so much um, that you say, well, it is not probable that he or she will survive at all. And yeah. then you can stop the therapy. But not because you suppose that he or she will only have five years to live. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, um, uh, yeah, feeling with all the doctors out in the field making these very, very tough decisions these days and uh, probably moving on from from that triaging and, and, and making the decisions, we are all experiencing some, yeah, let's say dystopian measures um, uh, that, that have been taken by the various governments, be it democratic or be it also authoritarian regimes in order to contain uh, the COVID virus um, spreading any further. Um, and uh, we are confronted with some invasion into our basic rights, uh, including the freedom to assemble, to move, to travel, um, and so on and so forth. And by this way, as we know, we're enforcing this, the social distancing, and many of the experts um, uh, deem this to be very necessary. From your personal perspective, um, both as a medic but also as an ethicist, um, do you agree with uh, the, the the currently prevailing opinion, or is there anything that you would do differently? Mainly, I agree with the prevailing opinion in Germany and some other countries, and I'm convinced that our primary concern at the moment must be to control the spread of the serious disease in such a way that the health system is not overburdened. We talked about triage, yeah. 
Um, the measures that are needed to achieve this, however, encroach, as you said, on fundamental rights and freedoms, movement, assembly, religion, and so on. And I'm convinced that this is temporarily justified in order to save human lives. But we must carefully monitor when the proportionality of these interventions is no longer justified. Mm -hmm. We have to think also of the societal and economic consequences of the measures and of the impact on human rights, democratic order and the rule of law. So in its statement, the European Group on Ethics in Science and New Technologies on European solidarity and protection of fundamental rights in the COVID-19 pandemic, underlined that derogations of human rights, albeit in the interest of the public good, must be temporary and critically. There must be clear, transparent criteria for their suspension, for instance, in the form of sunset clauses to emergency legislation. So the greatest danger, we say, during and after the end of any formal state of emergency is a new normal of eroded rights and liberties. That would be the worst end. What would I do differently? Mm, so first, I would not talk about social distancing, but about spatial mm -hmm. or physical distancing. Okay. So it is in physical distance that a social proximity can arise all the closer. Mm -hmm. And terms shape the story we tell. So let us be careful what terms we use to describe the present and to imagine the future. Another term mm -hmm. is exit strategy, what I don't like at all. Mm -hmm. It's a strategy to open up limit um, limitations and restrictions and the closure of public spheres and so on. So furthermore, I would report about data in a different way. Mm -hmm. We cannot properly understand the numbers of infected people if we don't know the number of those who are tested. Mm -hmm. We also cannot adequately understand the number of deaths because of COVID-19 if we don't know how many people usually die every day. Mm -hmm. And we need more data and awareness regarding other than COVID-19 risks, risks for people with other health problems such as cancer or degenerative diseases, Mm -hmm. Risks for child abuse, for domestic violence, for mental health because of unemployment, etc. So I would actually set up expert committees on a national level that monitor mm -hmm. and weigh all these risks and mm -hmm. which aim at developing recommendations for politics to implement a stepwise and risk-adapted strategy to loosen the massive restrictions. And, and this is uh, this is also becoming very apparent to me. I, I recently came across the Financial Times uh, article of the Australian historian and philosopher Harari, who wrote something that I just want to cite. He talked about that the choices we make now could change our lives for years to come. And he argues that we should definitely ask ourselves not only how we overcome the, the, the acute and immediate threat, but also take into account the long-term consequences of this and what we are and what we are not in a position to accept as, as they will shape basically our healthcare system, um, uh, not only as such, but also our economy, our politics, our culture, um, and that kind of the crisis management could become a new permanent normal in future. Um, where do you see from your perspective the, the biggest threats to our life um, in, in the current situation and, and what might be kind of uh, lasting after the acute setting? Mm -hmm. Actually, you ask for a very fundamental question, right? Mm -hmm. 
And if I have a look at that in this fundamental sense, I would say the biggest threat to our lives is ourselves. The way we deal with ourselves and how we deal with our fellow human beings and our environment that determines whether we can ultimately say that we have led a good life and one that has made mm -hmm. ourselves and others happy in a fundamental sense and on the long term. And that mm -hmm. means that at the same time, we are also the greatest opportunity mm -hmm. because we can decide how we shape our society, our economy, our culture, our way of life. We can be proud or humble. We can look mm -hmm. at our own advantages or at the common good. The strong can enrich themselves at the expense of the weak, or the strong can support the weak. We can destroy the environment or we can preserve it. We can think short term or long term. We can see in the other person, even if he or she is a stranger, the enemy or the friend. And we can run away from the question of what responsibility we bear, or we can accept this responsibility and in solidarity shape our present and future in such a way that all people can lead a flourishing life in freedom. So eventually it's up to us. I like your picture of, of us as humans and individuals. And obviously as society, we're the biggest threats at the same time as the biggest opportunity. Uh, basically it's in our hands and we need to have a societal dialogue um, of what we're going to accept going forward and where the values will lie for us as societies after the crisis. Huh? I have one example for, for instance. So if we decide that economy is such a fundamental institutionalized system for our societies, and I agree, economy has the function to serve the human being and to serve our societies. Why then do we have, do we deal with animals for our food as we do this? Why mm. don't we ask ourselves how to deal with other living entities with, with animals and, and how we treat them because they have a worth in themselves. Yeah. They have mm -hmm. a value for themselves and they, It's adequate that we deal with them in a respecting and respectful way. But that means perhaps that we can, we have to pay a little bit more for the meat we eat or mm -hmm. that we eat a bit, a little less than we eat. But why not doing that? Yeah, things might look hopefully a, a little different also after coming stronger out of the crisis. Uh, and um, hopefully we still have. Um, the time and the motivation to 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 talk about that yeah? um, and 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 tackle it um, for for the years to come. Can I can I just probe into something that I came across uh, when uh, also preparing for today? I uh, I came across something from the Malone University in Pittsburgh where they have um, a voice recognition app to detect COVID. Yeah, it's very very early days, no evidence yet, not a medical device whatsoever for the time being. But what they do is they um, have programmed an algorithm uh, that will eventually get uh, more safe and sound and accurate over time where you need to cough a couple of times into your smartphone where you need to pronounce some vowels and where you need to speak the alphabet 
Um, and based on the voice pattern in your cough and, and how you speak, they're comparing this then to healthy people, to people um, suffering from a normal influenza, and also to people that are deceased and, and, and registered for COVID-19. Um, despite the fact it's all early days, but months and years to come, if this is kind of eventually possible for COVID or anything to come, how, how is that going to change our lives? Um, and in your perspective, how is this ethical or unethical if our smartphones would be able to detect something like this and automatically send this to the payer, to your doctor or to any other institute um, that, that would have an interest in that? How do you see that happening going forward? There are a lot of technologies for healthcare being developed, already implemented, and there are clear rules to develop, to deploy, and to use them. It's up to us to shape it. Um, so the Data Ethics Commission, which gave uh, the recommendations to the German government in October last year, Mm -hmm. um, had a lot of recommendations to deal with these algorithmic systems. And of course, there are major human rights involved. Privacy, the right to self-determination, the relationship also between the citizen and the state. Um, is it personal data or anonymized data? Uh, do you agree to do that? So is your autonomy respected? There are a lot of things that you can shape in a way that we can use the opportunities of such an app mm -hmm. that we avoid to violate fundamental human rights. And probably also moving away a little from the the, the acute COVID-19 setting, I would want to jump to general advances in medicine to higher accuracy and, and more precise results in diagnostics. Um, uh, in a discussion uh, around the right to know about illnesses and preconditions um, are basically fueled up. And in a recent interview, and this is regardless of the COVID-19, it's also touching upon any cancer um, or, or other types of devastating disease, you, you talked about the individual freedom of wanting or not wanting to know is one of the greatest goods. Um, but what if a patient gets kind of a fatal diagnosis and, and knows that by now and, and regrets his decision of wanting to know? Um, in your perspective, should there be kind of a mechanism that, that can protect individuals from themselves in these situations? Um, or is this kind of an improper paternalistic approach in your opinion? Well, I, I think we have to be aware that health is not the highest good, but a fundamental good. Yeah, the okay. highest good from the ethical point of view is freedom. Mm -hmm. And this also includes the freedom of informational self-determination. And mm -hmm. it includes the fact that I have the right to know something about myself or not to know something about mm -hmm. myself and my health. But it is, of course, only a free and responsible decision if I know its consequences. And in order to be able to reflect on this sufficiently, a good information and counseling is of crucial importance. And in this counseling process, the question has to be considered how the individual will probably see the possible results from a future perspective. So one or two years later, for example. 
And further consideration is necessary if not only myself, but also others are affected, for instance, in the case of a genetic predisposition, which also can have an impact on relatives. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to take into consideration all consequences. If you get a fatal diagnosis, that opens up the possibility to concentrate on those things you wanted to do all your life, but always mm -hmm. postponed because you thought mm -hmm. you have enough time to do it later. And now you learn you don't have this time. And it opens up the possibility to say goodbye to people you didn't see for a long time. Or it opens up the possibility to think about what you still want to do in your life. Mm. There are other perspectives that open up than only health. Of course, there's sadness and people get first desperate when they learn about that. But when you talk to patients, you often learn that after being sad and after having been yeah, burdened by this tragic situation, they learn more about what life really is for. Mm. Yeah, and unfortunately, we only know what health means to us and how valuable it is once we lost it, uh, and and then we then we start to appreciate the the period before. Yeah, uh, yeah there's this wonderful saying. I think it's as it Kierkegaard. Don't remember that health is not everything, but that everything without health is nothing. Yeah. Very, very true statement. Uh, I, I can feel myself uh, very much into this. Yeah. And as you know, we did run a future of health study and we have been publishing around that. And that is also kind of the, the basis for this podcast that we are having currently. Um, and in that, we do emphasize that um, not only us, but also the, the experts that we interviewed and surveyed for this, um, that by 2030, healthcare will be way more personalized and enabled by data, big, big data and algorithms um, that can handle this and read insights into that. From your perspective, when it comes to these type of healthcare algorithms, is there from an ethics point of view, kind of good or bad algorithms that kind of um, yeah, manage and process a different kind of information? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, first of all, we have to learn that algorithms themselves cannot be good or bad. We, mm -hmm. as human beings, develop, deploy, and use them in a good or a bad way. And we have to True. assess this for each application. And the Data Ethics Commission, I already mentioned it, of the German mm -hmm. government, gave a lot of recommendations on this, building on fundamental rights and freedoms, which are enshrined in our constitution and in the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union. And I only can cordially invite you to read at least the executive summary, which you can easily find in the internet, because this is a mm -hmm. very huge topic. But yeah. algorithmic systems, of course, have to be shaped from the beginning according to an ethics by design approach, so that we think about how to develop it, which data go in, how do we avoid discrimination, how do we protect privacy, how do mm -hmm. we how do we guarantee that these algorithms in healthcare are really effective, yeah, and not discriminating against, for instance, black people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to think about. And uh, on that note, ethics by design, I can imagine that different societies have different values and ethical considerations on that. Is that something um, where you see huge differences looking into the world outside of Germany? Oh yeah, there can be differences. Um, there's a very prominent example with regard to an algorithm that calculates how long a patient will have to live. Mm-hmm. And now you can think about which data you feed into training this algorithm. If you feed data, economic data, so how mm-hmm. expensive is it to care for this patient in a hospital? Mm-hmm. And you take this decision then and say, well, you have a heart attack at home, but we don't take you into a hospital because that's too expensive. And you only mm-hmm. have half a year to live. Um, from my point of view, that would be unethical. Yeah, that would mm-hmm. be not ethically valid. Mm-hmm. There's another algorithm also calculating how long the patient will live, but for another purpose, namely to provide palliative care at the mm-hmm. right point of time. Yeah, because the experience is that doctors sometimes tend to think too late at palliative care. And mm-hmm. this, if this algorithm says, well, you should think about that, then the decision is with the doctor and the patient, and it is for the good of the patient. Mm-hmm. And it's contributing to the freedom of the patient that you referenced earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, uh, it's providing choices then. Uh, for the person to make. And um, as as these kind of artificial intelligences um, are lately now also yeah, showing that they are uh, gaining intelligence, um, consequently, uh, do you believe that an AI will also be able to learn uh, um, and, and evolve also ethical standards? Well, in, in my opinion, artificial intelligence will never be intelligent in the way that humans are intelligent. So a Mm -hmm. Romanian researcher once said very aptly, I like this, that people do not assess data, but recognize meanings. And this Mm -hmm. is what matters. We humans give meaning to our lives and we choose the life we want to live. And an artificial intelligence will never be able to develop this ethical dimension out of, out of itself. A self-driving car will never decide, well, Pooh, I would rather prefer to be a nurse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So an algorithms calculate, people act. And that's also why I absolutely don't like this wording, algorithms decide something. They cannot mm-hmm. decide something. They only can calculate Um, And algorithms take only selected data, even in huge networks, and people integrate multiple senses of impressions and connect them with their experiences in order to make sense of something. Mm -hmm. And I personally would never rely on standards which have been calculated by an artificial intelligence and which claim to be ethical standards. So the responsibility, even in highly automated algorithmic systems, always lies with people.
as AI can only work if there is data and knowledge yeah? and we're gaining um, knowledge around healthcare in, in an unseen and unprecedented manner, um, the more we know, the more we understand, the more we can even prevent uh, in future and, and also possibly contributing to increased life expectancy of all of us. In a recent interview with Die Zeit, which um, is a large German newspaper, you were illustrating kind of a futuristic scenario in which people could live up to 200 years, kind of. Yeah? In your perspective, what are ethical kind of consideration boundaries uh, with regard to this? Because we're pushing medical breakthrough uh, on the one hand, but at the other end, um, we need to cater for food, uh, environments, uh, economy, and, and what have you. How do you see that balance? Yeah, that was a thought experiment and thought experiments are very good to <laughs> try arguments, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you gained my attention at least uh, yeah. to a very large extent <laughs> with this. Yeah. I love thought experiments. So the ethical question does not focus on the length of life, but on the opportunity of living a meaningful life and the opportunity to mm -hmm. flourish. But the ethical challenge is, of course, in the situation you mentioned, that come with a very long life and living up for 200 years, well, it's really long. Uh, first referring to, for instance, social justice and justice between generations, allocation of scarce resources and so on. So who will pay for all these people? Um, what are we doing with the jobs? Do we have enough jobs? And how we will shape our societies then? But There are, and those are in the core of my interest, also very interesting questions with regard to, of the life course. So it's a, just look at how societies shape the life courses of their citizens. Childhood, mm -hmm. adolescence, adulthood, young, middle and old age. They're all phases that we structure along school, education and working life. And our current way of dealing with life stages would no longer work when many people reach the age of 100 or even 120 years. Mm -hmm. And actually, already now, according to my mind, at least, it is no longer appropriate how we deal with phases of life. We cut back on childhood. We don't allow children to be, to be children. We cut back on youth. We squeeze too mm -hmm. many things into being adults. And only to then, and at about 63 or 65, to dismiss people from working life and send them into several decades of leisure. Yeah. Of course, voluntary work and other important social functions can be carried out, but they cannot, they are not allowed to distribute their contribution to the world of work in a self-determined way throughout their lives. So if they want yeah. to take care for their children or for, for the elderly, They cannot say, I work less, but I extend the work until I'm 70 or 75 or 80. Mm -hmm. It depends on the profession, of course. But to be more flexible would be a huge advantage and a huge step forward for our societies. And if we really allow children to be children long enough, yeah, because if we deny these important phases of development, we have to pay for that afterwards. 
Thanks for sharing this, uh, Christiana. Uh, very thoughtful. So you say about yourself, um, Christiana, you are an optimist, and but judging uh, on the conversation we just had, I, I can definitely see this, yeah, um, and uh, that you rather see the the uh, the possibilities uh, rather than the the big challenges that cannot be overcome. Um, for you personally, what are the reasons? to believe that the future of healthcare will bring more benefits to us as society and individuals than risks for the people. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm afraid that I only can repeat myself because whether the future will bring more benefits or more risks always depends on how we shape the future. Yeah, We must mm -hmm. not lose sight of the things that are particularly important to us, but we must always be aware of them in all development. So ultimately... Mm -hmm. It is important that people can lead a life that they feel is a meaningful life. And this can mm -hmm. and will mean something different for each person. Mm. So, however, I'm convinced that all people want to flourish and to, to develop their talents. But we should shape the social, technological and economic conditions under which this happens in such a way that this goal can actually pursued. And the healthcare system is so important for the life of people. And the EGE also pointed out to the fact that health is has a prominent role in the European value system. And after all, we recommended in our recent statement that healthcare systems are fostered by political decisions after this crisis. And they get that they get the status and the support that they deserve so it puts it back into our hands of what we what we do with it uh, going forward right um and um uh, christiana at this point really a big big thank you uh, to uh, to all the thoughts that you shared the perspectives and the expertise that you brought into this podcast today and i have the deepest respect for the work you do uh, when it comes especially around those recommendations and and giving giving people uh, something to hold on when making tough decisions. And for me, um, it triggered uh, an even greater respect for people, um, be it the doctor, the nurse, anyone uh, employed at the hospitals and, and private practices dealing with this, being at the front line of medicine. Uh, yeah, biggest respect to that. And, and also um, what I took away is um, the long-term effects that are currently in debate of how will this change our world to come and future to come. Um, it's in our hand because we need to handle it yeah? and we need a societal dialogue around what we will accept as society and, and, and what we are not going to accept going forward once uh, the world has has stabilized and got back to normal again. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And um, yeah, we have to really support those who are doing the work to keep our societies running. Yeah, and those are not the ones who are paid best. We have to take yeah. this into account afterwards as well. Mm. Uh, and my major concern or my major wish at the moment is that Europe really stays together in solidarity and mm -hmm. that we come stronger out of this crisis than we've been before.
What a great ending of this, uh, I have to admit. And I already would like to invite you um, in, let's say, two years from now to have another podcast session today and reflect back of what changed since, um, because I, I can only imagine um, we will have a different dialogue in two years from now. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. thanks very much. And uh, yeah, take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this podcast and these very challenging questions <laughs> and thank you for the uh, for your kind invitation for the podcast it was a pleasure to talk to you same here great pleasure thanks christiana so thanks very much everyone for listening in today's um, episode if there is anything more um, that you want to know please go to our website and uh, download the latest thinking around the future of healthcare and with regard uh, to our upcoming uh, podcast session i'm very much looking forward to speaking to one of germany's most popular doctors who is currently a very thought after a person by TV shows and others to share his perspective as a doctor on COVID-19, but also around the future of healthcare more broadly. With that said, I wish you a nice day, stay healthy and tune in next time. Thank you and bye-bye. Strategy and strategy made real.